This is the One Soldier Canada History Podcast, Episode 9, The Fenian Invasion. The Fenians were a dauntingly elusive enemy for the Canadians. Private McIntosh was acutely aware of the skill and wartime experience of the enemy. Quote, It was easy to see that most of them were old soldiers of the American Army, by their perfect formation and the position they had taken up. End quote. Private Thomas Kilvington, 13th Battalion, was frustrated by not being able to take aim at the enemy. Quote, Their breastworks were built of fence rails sloping from the ground and banked with sods. The Fenians were cowards. They did not expose themselves long enough to take good aim. We saw their heads behind the defenses ducking up and down, and all their shots were going high. End quote. One of the Fenian officers, Captain John S. Mullen, a veteran who had been wounded in the Battle of Missionary Ridge in Tennessee, recalled this of the Canadians, quote, To most of us who had been in the war, it was plain that fighting was new to them. They exposed themselves unnecessarily, which trained men never do. About all they could see of us was a line of flags, about the biggest display of green flags I ever saw. End quote. And that right there is an excerpt from the book Ridgeway by author and historian Peter Vronsky, who is the expert on the Fenian invasions of Canada and the Battle of Ridgeway set in the year 1866. That's just one year before Canadian Confederation. In this podcast episode, Peter Vronsky is going to join me from his home in Toronto to talk about who the Fenians were, their leader John O'Neill, who was a decorated Civil War veteran, the strategy, and how the Fenians were able to rout the Canadian army from the field of battle that was sent to defeat them. And what's really interesting about this battle is that these were Irish Civil War veterans from both the North and the South, and they were up against Canadian militia. So think of farmers and store clerks and even university students. And I think you're going to find this episode really interesting today. But before we get into it, if you do like today's show, then soldiers, do your duty. Help me grow this audience by liking and sharing the podcast on your social media, and you can also leave a review. Okay, with that being said, Peter Vronsky is now going to join us, and he's beaming in now. Peter Vronsky, welcome to the podcast. Uh, hi, Russell. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's an honor to have you on, and... Uh, I'm not sure what the competition is like for this title, but I'm going to go ahead and call you the foremost expert on this little overlooked chapter of Canadian history called Ridgeway and the Fenian Invasion. And that's because, as far as I can tell, you've written the the definitive book on, on this battle. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Yes, uh, certainly uh, my book was the first one uh, since 1910. So the first book in the 100 years, it came out in 2010 to uh, focus exclusively on the, on the battle. Yeah, well, it's a great book. I picked it up well, a, couple, a couple years ago now, but I really enjoyed it. And I know that you've written a number of other books about well, primarily about crime and serial killers. So I just thought maybe we'd start off by telling us why, and telling the listeners at home, why you chose to venture into this sort of like overlooked chapter of Canadian history. Well, um, I wrote it as part of 
my academic program, I returned to graduate school after working as a journalist for about 30 years. Um, and so in the 2000s, um, I took about a decade off to earn a PhD. My field was um, the history of espionage and international relations. And I originally started writing a thesis on um, how the Toronto Police were one of our first national intelligence agencies, um, right, you know, in the pre-Confederation era. And, and so as I was going through the Toronto Police archives, I came upon these accounts of the Toronto Police escorting POWs from the Niagara frontier in June of uh, 1866. And, you know, for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what, you know, prisoners of war, what war were they talking about? You know, I heard about the Fenian raid, you know, knew there were a number of raids, but I, I, I really didn't know to the full extent what this raid meant or the meaning of, the, of, of that battle. It was never taught in high school here in Ontario. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I went in the 1970s to high school and by then it wasn't part of the curriculum. So um, here I was in my 50s, essentially starting to work on a PhD in history. Um, and, and this was all news to me. And, and so when I pulled on that thread, um, you know, what was, you know, who were these POWs and what was the Toronto police doing escorting them? And, and, and um, I kept pulling on that story and eventually that became my um, doctoral dissertation. Uh, the kind of the hidden history of the battle and why we had forgotten it and what exactly happened. Um, and, and, and so I defended my thesis in 2010 and, and then Penguin got a hold of my thesis and and you know it's slightly different it's a little bit less academic but more or less they kind of published uh the thesis as i had written yeah well it, it's really cool um i was just talking to uh some other some of my friends who have written military memoir books and you know we, we were sort of like lamenting the or not really lamenting but just going over the the challenges and obstacles of getting a military memoir book published because it's like you know if you bring a military memoir to a publisher it's almost like kryptonite like they don't even want to touch it well um i had a lot of problem just getting uh uft to touch it you know they you know history departments these days are into structural history about isms right you know feminism racism socialism uh, all the isms, but they don't like stories. And, and essentially, my thesis was a narrative. And I was told that um, U of T graduate school, the history department, hadn't passed a thesis that's narrative history in something like 30 years. Mine, mine was the first. And I was fortunate to have a, a, a kind of, a, you know, a professor who was there since since the 50s, Robert Bothwell, who was still kind of an old school and still is an old school historian. And, and so he defended this um, thesis and its place. And, and certainly in publishing, well, you know, military history of Canadian history, it sells very well. 
Um, mm -hmm. But of course, the, the modifier here is Canadian history. So I think sometimes the problems with, with getting Canadian military history or memoirs published has to do with more it being part of Canadian history rather than especially military history. Canadian military history does sell, but unfortunately, Canadian history overall does not. That's the problem we all yeah. face. Well, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Let's go. Right, I, I just thought we maybe uh, would start off by. I'm just going to tell you a little story. I about eight years ago, I was at my uh, dad's office at Queens Park, and uh, that's where I first came across this uh, this weird monument. And it's like it's the monument to the Battle of Ridgeway, and it's sort of hidden. It's off the the path. If I remember correctly, there's like a lot of like overgrown bushes sort of surrounding it. And then when you look at the monument itself. It's it's completely falling apart. It's eroded. It's weathered. There's you know the the statuettes on the monument are like missing their their limbs and the faces are all washed by the weather. And there's like a description, and I'm sort of paraphrasing it now, but the description reads a little something like these soldiers won't be forgotten. And the irony is that like these soldiers yes. have been forgotten, and this battle has been forgotten, and this monument itself has been forgotten. Yes. Yes. Um, the Volunteers Monument, it's Toronto's oldest standing public monument. And the, the state you probably saw it in, um, you know, the sculptures and the monument, well, the sculptures were marble, but the, but the monument itself was out of sandstone. So um, after uh, 150 years of rains and, and, and so forth, it, it got weathered. Now, the Ontario government has put a protective coating on, on the monument and kind of froze it in that decayed state that you saw it. Um, and and, and I, I think that's very appropriate to, you know, reflecting how we had forgotten that history. Um, I hope they'll never restore it to its former Victorian glory, but we'll leave it as it is. It's not going to decay any further, but it is frozen in this kind of melted, forgotten, almost ambiguous state that it's in. So it's a very touching monument. You know, you suddenly become aware of just how lost this history was. And certainly it was a, a gathering place at the end of the 19th century for thousands of Torontonians who would come there to mark the anniversary of the battle. It, it actually became the site of what was Canada's first Remembrance Day, which used to be called Decoration Day. So it's, it was an important monument, but, you know, has been forgotten as has the battle and the men fought in that battle and sacrificed their lives as, as, as well. It's, yeah, it's, and um, but what I wanted to ask you is, why, why do you think that is? Because, well, I mean, if we were to put Ridgeway in, like, the timeline of the American Civil War, then, you know, it would barely register as a, as a blip or a footnote. But by Canadian standards, the battle is, you know, it's fairly significant given that there were thousands of people involved and, you know, dozens of casualties. So, like, why do you think that this battle... Uh, isn't really known about and not really taught about in the, in the school system as well. Well, I think we can start uh, firstly with the fact that uh, we were routed off the battlefield. Uh, this was not a victory for all sorts of reasons. The 
primary reason was um, kind of administratively. The soldiers who fought in that battle were not well equipped and prepared. And that, of course, then falls into the prerogative of the Minister of Militia at that time. And that happened to be John A. MacDonald. And, and of course, it was a huge embarrassment for John A. MacDonald. MacDonald at that moment, of course, was trying to rally the country and the provinces towards confederation. Uh, one of his reasons that he was promoting confederation was that it would enable us to be able to defend ourselves as the British were uh, withdrawing troops from Canada and were reluctant to deploy further troops here. And, and so the idea was that the United Canada can defend itself. And of course, that is certainly not demonstrated by what happened at, at Ridgeway. Uh, and, and so this happens a year before Confederation formally comes into play. And, and of course, it would have been a terrific embarrassment to MacDonald and his claim to be the politician who is going to be our first prime minister and lead our first um, government. So right mm -hmm. away, blame was handed out as, as, as we know in which direction shit flows, blame was right away meted out on the men on the field. The, the basic conclusion was that there was a, um, a failure of courage on the battlefield. And, and then next up in the blame game was, of course, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Booker, who commanded the brigade that went into battle and, you know, accusations of his mismanagement of the battle and the calling of um, a cavalry square, which was a ludicrous command to give, considering that, you know, there was no cavalry and right. cavalry charges were no longer something that occurred in that epoch. Um, you should have known better and, and, and so forth. And so that's how the history was, was left. And there's a lot of politics at play in this. It's all politics. It's, it's all, it was all politics. Um, and the other thing, of course, that starts happening in the 1870s, of course, you know, we forget that Ontario had a very powerful separatist movement arising in the 1870s, uh, long before Quebecers started thinking about it. A lot of Ontarians began to feel that they were betrayed by the Confederation deal. And, and, and so there was this kind of call by sovereignists in Ontario to renegotiate kind of the constitutional um, arrangement between Ottawa and um, Toronto, between the province and, and the federal government. And, of course, this idea that Upper Canada or Canada West was a sovereign prior to confederation. You know, we, the province had a direct relationship with the crown. Ottawa was not in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so as sovereignists began to try to reclaim that direct relationship in Ontario, and many of them were Ridgeway uh, veterans as well, right? And they were now in Queen's Park, the all mm -hmm. were Mowat government. Ridgeway became kind of a symbol as the last battle that sovereign Ontario had fought. So once again, 
um, there was this kind of struggle by the federal government to try to appropriate Ridgeway as a symbol of national unity, while Ontario veterans were looking at it as a symbol of a local political community that, that um, fought despite management uh, from Ottawa, which you know, partly could be laid to blame for the defeat on, on the battlefield. I mean, when, you know, our troops were deployed without maps, without canteens, without tools, it it was a complete disaster. Yeah. And and what's interesting, too, is, uh, and you write about this in the book, is that the Fenians who the Canadian Army was faced against, well, first of all, the Canadian Army, was it was malicious. So, you know, these aren't professional soldiers. And they were up against the, the veterans of the American Civil War. That's right. Like you're, you're placing green troops against like the, the, this would sort of be, I was like wondering or sort of thinking in my mind, like, what would this look like today? And if you were to draw like a a comparison in 2020, this would be like a thousand American veterans coming back from, you know, Fallujah or Ramadi in Afghanistan crossing the border with like sophisticated weaponry. Exactly. These were like warriors. These weren't just like a, like a, a mob. It was like, they, they were up against the best. That's, um, you know, that was one thing as well why we, we kind of hushed up this battle because, um, first of all, there was this myth that these were Irish Catholics. Um, and, and, of course, in the 1860s, um, Irish-Protestant relations still were in that very antagonistic stage, and, 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 and especially Irish Catholics. Right? They were looked down upon as at the bottom of the social heap in, in Canada. So this idea that, quote, um, a drunken Irish Catholic mob crossed the border and, and managed to defeat, you know, these Protestant, red-coated, British-trained Canadian militia was an embarrassment. Um, and, and, and so that was one of the, of the issues. And, and of course, the Fenians were, firstly, there were um, about a third of them, if not more, were Protestants. This was not a religious thing. It was a, a Republican thing. And secondly, indeed, there were survivors of dozens of apocalyptic battles in the Civil War. They were very disciplined. They were not a drunken mob at at all. Um, They were very well equipped and supplied. And they moved meticulously through the, the, uh, the field, seizing horses, seizing entrenching tools. Um, they were highly experienced. Um, we, you know, we hadn't fought a major war since the War of 1812. Um, and, and certainly there hadn't been any combat in the Ontario region since um, the Hunter Lodge raids in 1838 during, you know, the troubles, the 1837-1838 troubles. So, um, you know, most of the militia volunteers, um, their grandfathers fought for the last time in Canada in the smooth barrow era. Right. Uh, so this was a completely different, we were very inexperienced. In fact, um, you know, I, I, I read these accounts where Canadian soldiers were complaining, well, you know, those Fenians, they don't know how to fight. We can't see them. Right. Uh, while the Fenians are all saying, well, you know, those Canadians, they don't know how to fight. We see them all. 
Yeah, I think you write about that in the book, how the Fenians, uh, after the battle, one of them is writing in his diary about how the Canadian soldiers moved through ground, like completely exposed, not the way that like a veteran soldier would. Yes. Although, 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 of course, they didn't notice the Queen's own rifles, who, who of course, were wearing rifle green and were skirmishing in in kind of new way as, as, as a rifle regiment. Right. Um, you know, all their eyes were fixed on the 13th Battalion from Hamilton, who were wearing this traditional scarlet uniform and, and of course, were an infantry regiment and deployed in these kinds of traditional line formations. Yeah. And so, of course, you uh, know, you can imagine the you can imagine the Irish Fenians looking at the Redcoats and being like, OK, now we're going to get some like this is. Yeah. What symbolizes the British Empire more than the red coat or the red tunic. Yeah. And, and, and of course the Fenians thought that these were British troops uh, at Mm -hmm. that moment. They didn't realize that they were Canadians. In fact, that was one of the things that several hours later shook O'Neill, the Fenian commander a little bit when he realized that, Oh, wait a minute. We just went through uh, Canadian volunteers. The British hadn't gotten to us yet. That was the one thing that kind of shook his confidence that day because the battle ends at around noon and their thrust was towards the Welland Canal. And and so now he had to make a decision whether to continue marching towards the Welland Canal or now turn back. Was that his objective? Like I, I was sort of wondering, like the, the Athenians, they plan to invade Canada at a few different points and, and most of those fizzled out, but the invasion on the Niagara frontier was successful, did come to fruition. So like, what was the Fenian local strategy or objective in invading there? um, The the strategy there was to seize the canal and destroy the locks. You know, that would have cut off a lot of movement in that part of the province. That was the objective. Um, There were another five to 10,000 Fenians arriving in Buffalo which were supposed to follow through behind O'Neill's uh, column. O- O'Neill's thrust was essentially a, just an advanced column. Uh, what happened is, of course, is the United States Navy saved our ass. They cut off all travel across um, the river by the afternoon. The uh, USS Michigan, a, a gunboat, was deployed. And at that point, O'Neill realized um, that no more reinforcements or supplies were crossing the river. A column of British troops with Canadian troops, artillery, um, cavalry were just a few miles away from from Ridgeway. And O'Neill realized now that, you know, this is going to be a tougher fight. And without any more reinforcements coming across the river at noon, he decided he's going to now fall back into Fort Erie. And, you know, a second battle was fought in Fort Erie. And by around midnight, um, this would have been now Sunday, he realized that, you know, no more troops are coming and he decided to return back to Buffalo. And of course they were all intercepted by the Michigan as they tried to cross the river back to Buffalo and then held under arrest for about a week before they were paroled. Right. Okay. So, so they got like a little slap on the wrist, I guess you could say from the Americans. 
Oh yeah, they they all signed parole uh, agreements and were set free. And in fact, they their railway tickets back home were paid. I mean, they arrived from as far away as Louisiana, Tennessee, Ohio, Kentucky. They were given, like I said, rail tickets to go home. Yeah, well, and that that in itself is pretty interesting because the Fenians under O'Neill, their commander, these were guys who, like you said, they some of them were coming from Louisiana, some from Tennessee, some from Ohio. And what's sort of fascinating for me is these guys would have they would have been fighting each other for the past what like four or five years in the American Civil War. Like there's a very good chance they could have even been on the same battlefield on different sides. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the Louisiana uh, Louisiana Tigers, uh, in fact, wore their Confederate Army tunics when they when they arrived here. <laughs> yeah, it's, but, in- it's interesting that they could they could sort of put that aside. Yeah, and you know, I I I think you know the Civil War era was you know it's a slightly different era there was this kind of sense i think of comradeship and, and chivalry still that late in our in, in our history where there was a kind of a respect from warrior to warrior beyond their affiliation with whatever state they had been and and of course many of the irish in that war um they had been encouraged by the fenian brotherhood to join and serve in the union to get training and experience for the big fight coming to liberate Ireland. So, um, yeah, they saw themselves, I think, all um, united as Irish patriots. I think that's how they saw themselves, rather than Confederate Union and so forth. Yeah, right. Because I guess a lot of them would have been fairly recently immigrated to America, and so their their loyalty would have been to, or in their hearts anyways, they're, they're still thinking of themselves as Irish first. Well, that's a kind of an Irish thing, too, you know, the kind of attachment to the homeland, the sense of being an exile. There is an exile culture, especially after the, the potato famine of the 18, 1848, 49, um, that's built in Irish culture, this longing for home. So even, you know, amongst Irish who had lived 30, 40 years in the United States. Yeah. You know, Oh, and and you still have people in in like you know Boston who they'll say they're Irish and yeah. <laughs> they haven't had a family member born in Ireland for like centuries. Yes, yeah. Oh, I mean, to this day, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, I mean. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to just clarify is like it seems to me that the Fenian plan to invade Canada, like the hardest part, would have been getting the army across that Niagara River and then you know winning a battle, and and that's what they actually pulled it off. So, you know, maybe it was yeah. a crazy idea after all, like to embark. Well, you know, if you, if you look at what the Fenian plan actually was, it, it wasn't at all a crazy idea because this wasn't about invading or conquering Canada. This was about seizing Canada and holding it hostage. Um, the idea was to precipitate a crisis back in Ireland and in Britain. And, and, and so it was an entirely plausible scenario. They had hoped to just wear down the British political will to hang on to Ireland over there. Uh, so this wasn't um, an idea of, you know, conquering a territory and then holding it and controlling it. It's a lot like, I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head right now, but it's a lot like the American war aims in, in the War of 1812 that they're going to you know, get back at Britain by 
you know, attacking the, the colony of Canada. Yeah, in a way. I mean, the way the Fenians described it, um, and, and there was a debate, you know, the Fenian movement split. Um, there, there were two sections. One group wanted to take the battle to Ireland. The other group, said, no, you know, we need to attack the nearest British target, which was Canada. And so um, they described it as the shortest route to Ireland. Uh, yeah, well, that, that makes sense. And, and also, like, when you consider the, the number of, you know, Irish immigrants in Canada at that time, how, I, like, I wonder, I guess there's really no way to know this for sure, but I wonder how many of those people would have been sympathetic to the Fenians as well that, that could have maybe bolstered their ranks uh, if this thing had gone? Well, this, this is um, one of the significances um, for Canadian history of this invasion. It put essentially the differences between Irish Catholic and Irish Protestant aside. The result was, was the Irish Catholic population, including local Canadian Fenians, remained loyal to Canada. Mm-hmm. And, and this was something that the Fenians had miscalculated because they brought, each Fenian had about four rifles to each mm-hmm. Fenian, which they had intended to distribute to um, the local Irish population that was going to rise up. That uprising never occurred. Uh, and so this um, kind of when it was over, it brought Irish Catholics living here in Canada, into the fold of the community. Irish Catholics were no longer, after this event, kind of held suspect as uh, potential rebels or right. anti-monarchists or anti-Protestants and, and, and so forth. Th- that, that whole, you know, the tension certainly continued between the Orange Order and the, and the Green and so forth. But this was the first kind of testing of the loyalty of Irish Catholic refugees from the famine here. Um, and, and they passed the test. There was there. I'm, I'm sure there were of course um, some who supported the invasion, but, but nothing dramatic or obvious that we know of. And, and as I said, we had a Fenian movement in, in Toronto, uh, a cell, a circle led by Michael Murphy, you know, Michael Murphy was willing to participate in the invasion of New Brunswick uh, a few months earlier. But he absolutely felt himself, you know, people in those days, Canadians kind of looked at New Brunswick as a different country. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so he would absolutely refuse to endorse an invasion of Ontario uh, or Quebec, which, which was at that point, what, you know, what Canada was known as, just these two provinces. And, and I think because he was part of the community here. I mean, even as a Fenian, you know, he was ahead of a secret Fenian cell that was embedded in the Hibernian Society, a militant group within, um, within the Irish Catholic community, kind of the equivalent to the Orange Order. And, you know, he would stand on the parade review with the Bishop of Toronto, with the mayor and and so forth. He owned a tavern in Toronto. So, you know, he had roots and property in the community. That's where I think the loyalty was based. A lot of Irish who came here felt they were part of this community here. 
Yeah, it's an interesting distinction that, uh, you know, maybe some of them might have been willing to attack New Brunswick, but not, th- not their own home in, in Upper Canada. And yeah. That, that really, like, speaks to the, uh, like, this lack of Canadian identity, which people like McDonald were trying to, to build at the time. Well, that's the other significance of this battle is uh, C.P. Stacy, Canada's, you know, prominent military historian. Way back in the 1930s, when he was still a young man, C.P. Stacy wrote this argument that it was Ridgeway, essentially, that gave us our sense of national identity. That this was the first time that our community was tested, and, and Canadians showed that they were ready to give up their life to defend a way of life that was uniquely indigenous to Canada. Um, you know, we fought in the War of 1812, but when we fought that war, we were fighting for England, for Britain. We, we felt as a province of, of Britain, a little corner of Britain. By the 1860s, we had a sense of our own community here. This was a political community, a way of life that was uniquely Canadian. And now, for the first time, it was, it was tested and threatened. And Canadians went to the mats to defend our, our, our homeland, and this was the first time. Um, you know, we fought for the Maple Leaf first, and the crown came second. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. I, I'm wondering... That's how that... the Maple Leaf Forever comes, that song. I mean, Alexander Muir fought at Ridgeway. He oh. was injured at, at Ridgeway. Um, and, you know, you have this story that the Maple Leaf Forever... Uh, you know, a, a little leaf fell on his sleeve and, and he saw the leaf on his sleeve and, you know, was inspired to write that song. That's, that's total nonsense. What Muir was thinking of when he wrote the Maple Leaf Forever was the Maple Leaf badge that the Queen's Own Rifles, the regiment he served in, wore on their, on the, on their caps. That's the Maple Leaf. Yeah, fascinating. I, I had no idea that's, the, uh, that's how, it, how it started. Yeah, he wrote it shortly after. That's that's my theory. I mean, there's yeah. nobody knows what was inspired, but he wrote it shortly after. Well, but it, um, but it makes sense though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's a patriotic song. It became Anglo um, English speaking Canada's kind of unofficial national anthem. And of course, as I say, Muir fought in the. 10th Company, the Highlanders, was um, he wasn't wounded, but he was injured in battle. He, he, yeah. he um, went over a fence and dislocated his shoulder. Speaking of the wounded, I mean, one part in the book that, uh, that I really found fascinating was, like, you, you sort of get into the wounds that these guys suffered as a result of uh, the new technology that was being employed on the battlefield. And man, oh man, like, these were just ghastly wounds that these guys lived with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, the wounds, of course, all, all that munition um, by the end of the 19th century is outlawed by the Hague Convention. And, and um, the Minet round wasn't intended to do the kind of damage, but for technical reasons, um, it had to have a hollow base. And so it was like a hollow point bullet, but in reverse. Um, and it had the same effect. Uh, so this was an unintentional aspect of, of Minet rounds, but um, the wounds, as I say, was like getting hit by a hollow point um, bullet. And of course, hollow points are entirely illegal on the battlefield. You have to have right. a you know, full metal jacket. 
thing, right? So, so the wounds, you know, it's what killed 620,000 Americans in the Civil War. These wounds, uh, plus disease, of course, but these, these wounds that when you get hit in the leg, I mean, that's the end of your leg. There's no repairing that kind of wound. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, the guys that had to live with these, I mean, I don't imagine there would have been much uh, veteran support back in the 1860s either. Yeah, about as much as there is today. You know? <laughs> well, not said. much, in other words. Yeah. Well, hey, Peter, we're almost out of time, so I just want to say thanks again for coming on the podcast, and and also thank you for writing the book. It, I found it to be a fascinating read, especially, you know, for someone who is, uh, you know, a self-described Civil War buff like myself. This is really the closest we're going to get to a taste of the Civil War in Canada. So, awesome read, awesome book, and and thanks again for coming on the program. That's great. Well, thanks for having me on. It was my pleasure. And that concludes my interview with Peter Vronsky. If you want to learn more about the Battle of Ridgeway and this overlooked moment in Canadian history, then pick up a copy of Peter Vronsky's book. It's titled Ridgeway, The History of Canada. And I'm going to post a link to that on the website, www.onesoldierpodcast.com. That's it for this episode, which I'm going to dedicate to all the men whose names are etched onto the Ridgeway Monument near Queen's Park in Toronto. If you have any suggestions for any future episodes that you want me to take a look at, well, find me on social media. And if you like what you heard today, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, help grow the audience. You can share this on your own social media, like it, spread the word, etc. That's it. That's all for now. Out.